Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor in Maidenbower Baptist Church in the southeast of England in a town called Crawley, and it's my privilege to walk with you through these sermons by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Victorian pastor-preacher, and to try and learn from him what it means to preach Christ and to learn the Christ whom he preached. This week we're focusing on sermons 402 through to 408 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit and our featured sermon for this week is 402, the joint heirs and their divine portion. It was delivered on Sunday morning 28th of July 1861 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle and the phrase which forms the foundation for the whole discourse is Romans 8.17, the words that simply say, joint heirs with Christ. On this occasion then, just a, a phrase rather than a whole verse. And Spurgeon identifies at least the the background, the logical train of reasoning that gains this glorious point, joint heirs with Christ. These are links in a chain, different truths draw on each other. The spirit of adoption proves the fact of adoption. By the act of adoption, we are children. If children, then heirs. If heirs, heirs of God. But since there is another heir, we must therefore be joint heirs with Christ. And so he says, I want you to understand the happiness of the man to whom this reasoning is not abstract, not merely a logical progression, but genuinely experimental. That is, it's an experience which we have entered into. It is something which we ourselves actually enjoy. To be able to say, yes, I have this morning the spirit of a son. I know that my heart loves God and I look to him as my father with trust, with confidence, with love, and I'm surely his son because I have the spirit of a son. So I am his heir, heir of God, and thus my faith lays hold upon the thrice precious words of this glorious text. I am joint heir with Christ. This then is what Spurgeon wants us to be dealing with, and he wants us to do it uh, using uh, language and ideas drawn primarily from this uh, legal dynamic of inheritance. He wants us to think about the terms of the will, then to go forth and view the estates, see what it is that we're going to inherit, and then administer this uh, this will, this uh, inheritance to God's people. The structure of the sermon then, at least at that level, is typically straightforward. The terms of the will, viewing the estates, and administering the inheritance. Uh, but as we work our way through, we'll see that uh, Spurgeon pulls this in a number of different directions, all of them reasonably helpful, um, but it's perhaps not the most uh, simple and straightforward structure. And a good reminder then to us, if we are preaching and teaching, that simplicity is good, uh, that it's worthwhile pursuing that, but that we don't need to be so tied down to our firstly, secondly, thirdlies that we can't develop these ideas in ways that hopefully are still clear and helpful. So then, the legal term in the will upon which the whole matter will hinge, what does it mean that we are called joint heirs with Christ? Now, there are a number of things here that Spurgeon wants to bring out. So under his first heading, there are a number of subheadings. First of all, it means that our right to the, to the divine heritage stands or falls with Christ's right to the same inheritance. 
Then, if we are called joint heirs with Christ, we legally and strictly have no inheritance apart from him. And then, another judiciously handled mystery, that Christ as co-heir has so identified himself with us that his rights as co-heir are not to be separated or viewed apart from ours. And under the first of those subheadings, he's got a number of uh, particular leading thoughts and a contrast. And then the second one is quite brief. And the third one, again, has a couple of different things to uh, to think about. So uh, you've got to follow him reasonably carefully here if you're going to get all the good stuff out of what he has to say. So first of all, under this first heading, our right to the divine heritage stands or falls with Christ's right to the same inheritance. In other words, our union with him means that our two interests are intertwined and made one. Neither of us have any heirship apart from the other. We are joint heirs. Christ jointly with us, ourselves jointly with Christ. And so Spurgeon draws out some possibilities. If there's any flaw in the will, it's not going to be valid. If there's any suit in law made against the will, then there'll be a problem. If there's nothing left to distribute, then we're both empty. And if the inheritance is a mere trifle, then what's the point? These are the sorts of uh, ways that he's thinking. And again, what he's doing here, and he does this quite a lot, is is take an, effectively an illustration or a parallel. And he uses that practical parallel that most of his congregation would have been familiar with and uses it to uh, draw out the threads of the teaching in the particular verse. So then, if our right to the divine heritage stands or falls with Christ's right to the same inheritance, if there's any flaw in the will, if it's not rightly signed, sealed and delivered, it's no more valid for Christ than it is for us. If there are some points, he says, in the covenant of grace where wisdom has been deficient and therefore by error it may miscarry, or there's a lack of legal right to, and it will prove null and void, then that will be true for Christ as for ourselves because of our union with the Lord Jesus. And that really is the underpinning doctrinal reality that runs through this whole sermon. Union with Christ with regard especially here to this inheritance. And so the, the inheritance of the King of Kings would fail him in the very day when it fails us. And again, the emphasis is that this cannot and will not happen. So if the will is valid for one and valid for Christ, then it's valid for all and so valid for us. But Spurgeon next supposes that there might be a suit in law made against the will. Some antagonist might set up a counterclaim. An enemy to the entire family may proceed at once to attack the will with venom and with malice. Take it into the heavenly court of chancery. Uh, the, the courts of chancery uh, were... Uh, if you want to find out a little bit about how miserable they were, uh, find a little bit of Dickens and, and look at some of the references he makes and sometimes the whole books that he devotes uh, to uh, the the machinations of the Court of Chancery and the length of time that it took for anything to get through those. And so if Satan comes to accuse, then he has to accuse Christ with us. 
if it's possible that the malice and the craft of hell could invent some scheme by which the covenant could be put out of court, says Spurgeon, and the promise of grace could be made to fail, then Christ fails with his people, and the heir of all things loses his inheritance as soon as one single one of the other heirs shall have his right to the inheritance disproved. Our rights, then, are joint rights, and must be either jointly acknowledged or jointly denied. If you're wondering why Spurgeon starts like this, just wait a moment and we'll try and follow the logic of his sermon development. So, the full meaning of the joint airship needs to be illustrated. What if, after winding up the affairs of the testator, there is nothing left to distribute? That after all this boast and talk about being heirs, the property should be nil, or there's found a debt against the estate? Well, if we get nothing, Christ gets nothing. If we have no heaven, Christ has no heaven, no thrones for us, no throne for him. If the promise should fail of fulfilment to the least of the joint heritors, it must also fail of accomplishment to our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last of these uh, sub-points with regard to the possible difficulties uh, that, uh, that might follow on. Uh, what if it's a mere trifle? What if it's just enough to excite your appetite but not sufficient to satisfy it? What if the, uh, the will should come at last that heaven is not actually infinitely joyful? Its bliss is inferior joy, such as might be found in this world below. Then there's little glory and little joy, not just for the saints, but for Christ himself. Now, why is Spurgeon saying these things? Because they're not necessarily the most straightforward things. Straightforward things. He's, he's asking, straightful? That's an interesting word straightforward things. The reason why he's saying these things is because he's emphasizing our union with Christ with regard to the inheritance. And he wants us to understand that if there's any flaw in the will, any suit in law, any lack of material to distribute, or a worthless inheritance at the end, that that has to be true not only for Christ as the heir, but for us as joint heirs with Christ. Or, flip it, if that's true for us as heirs, then it must be true for Christ also. And now here's his point under this first part of his first heading. I've been dwelling upon the black side of things in order to bring the bright one out by contrast. He's doing all of that spade work to make us realise that because Christ's inheritance is sure, therefore ours must be also. We are joint heirs, he says. So you see, if there be any flaw, if there be any action to set aside the will, or if there be found no effects, or if the effects be slender, the loss falls upon the co-heirs, not on one alone, nor on the other alone, but on the two, since they're jointly designated heirs in the will, and they are only heirs as they stand in relationship with one another. But, oh, my brothers, let us revel with delight for a moment in the contrast which I might present to you. There is no flaw in God's will with regard to Christ. There's no fear whatever that by any accident or by mistake, Christ should miss the honour to which his Father has ordained him. He must be with his Father where he is. And so, says Spurgeon, if that's true of Christ, it must also be true of us. And that's the point he's trying to make. 
Now, again, if you're a preacher or a teacher, you might need to be careful how you try this kind of uh, logic. But by setting up the awful possibilities, Spurgeon is laying the groundwork to say that cannot happen. If you're going to lose, Christ is going to lose. Christ cannot lose, therefore you will not lose. And that's how he's trying to then emphasize the certainty. Overleap the boundaries of Christ's possession if you can, and then dream of finding a limit to the possessions of the elect of God. All things are yours, for you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. But another element of this union with Christ, and remember we're still under this first main heading, that we are joint heirs with Christ, and that's the legal term in the will upon which the whole matter hinges. The second thing to consider there is that we legally and strictly then have no inheritance apart from him. And that makes us ask the question, am I in Christ or not? Do not think, says Spurgeon, that you can ever be a partaker of the fullness of God unless you are in Christ, with him vitally and personally one. So here's a a more evangelistic thrust under this first heading. Consider this believer. You have no right to heaven in yourself. Your right lies in Christ. If you be pardoned, it is through his blood. If you be justified, it's through his righteousness. If you are sanctified, it's because he is made of God unto you sanctification. If you're taught in God's ways, it's because he becomes your wisdom. If you're kept from falling, it will be because you're preserved in Christ. And if you are perfected, it is because you are complete in him. And if glorified at last, it will be because the Father has glorified his Son, Jesus. So the unbeliever, you must be in Christ in order to have these things. And the believer, you do not have these things apart from Jesus Christ. And so it's a Christ-exalting sermon. Make yourself assured then, says Spurgeon, that you are in union with Christ, for out of him you have no rights whatsoever. And then this uh, judicious handling of another part of the mystery, Christ as co-heir, has of his own free grace, so identified himself with us that his rights as co-heir are not to be separated or viewed apart from ours. Now, this isn't far removed from some of the things that he's already said. He's gone a little bit Puritan here. He's not quite splitting hairs uh, so much as teasing out some individual hairs and making us wonder whether or not they're not all off the same head. As God, by his own right, the Lord Jesus is possessor of all things, since he made and supports all things. But as Jesus the mediator, there's the careful distinction, the federal head of the covenant of grace, he has no rights apart from his people. He acts on our behalf. If he stands in the presence of God, it is for us. Adam's death was not a private matter, for in Adam all died. Christ's life is not a private matter because he is not a private person. He's a public representative. So when Christ gave himself for us, he gave us all the rights and privileges which went with himself so that now he has as our brother no heritage apart from us. Although as eternal God, he does have essential rights to which no creature may venture to pretend. So Spurgeon is is flipping around something that we've already hinted at under the first subheading, under this first main heading, which is 
because Christ has these things, we must have these things. The other side of that is, because he has undertaken to be our mediator, if we were to lack these things, then Christ would lack these things. It's, it's a fine distinction, but it just shows how Spurgeon is trying to cover his ground carefully, theologically. And then one more remark before we leave this point. Uh, and I'm not sure whether this would count as uh, the fourth point or if it just comes under this, th this third point, that an honour of incredible magnitude is conferred upon us in this. Soul, says the preacher, you are linked with Christ in the eternal business of the eternal Father. When he decreed Christ to be blessed above all the blessed, he decreed you to be a partaker with him. Look then today upon your own being, not as a stray spark, but a portion of Christ's fire, not as a solitary drop, but a part of that deep sea of love which we call Christ Jesus. Think of yourself now, not as a man or a separate individual, but as a member of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So it's again this glorious reality and this wonderful honour of being united to Jesus Christ. And so Spurgeon, having proved that point in this way, having used this uh, illustrative model, he has tried to persuade us and to demonstrate to us that we are indeed united with Christ as joint heirs, and there's a union effectively from both sides. And so he says, if that's true, what is your inheritance? What are the estates that you will come into possession of? And there's two elements to this. There's an inheritance of suffering and there's an inheritance of glory and true lasting blessing. When Christ was God's heir, he was heir of the cross, of shame, spitting, cruel mockings and scourgings. And that's the first part of our inheritance. On the edge of the, the brightness and the beauty of the Father's great inheritance lies the swamp and morass of affliction and persecution and furthermore temptation. These three things are all part of the inheritance or must be experienced on the way into the fullness of that inheritance. You cannot have the, the crown without the cross. You cannot have the glory without the suffering. And so there will be affliction. There will be tribulation. There will be trials. There will be persecutions. Christ was persecuted and so must you be. If they persecute the master, they'll persecute the servants. If they persecute the older brother, they will assault the younger also. And then a third part of this fearful portion, temptation. You must be tempted of Satan. You must be tried by the world, the flesh and the devil. You want perhaps Job's jewels, says Spurgeon, but not his dunghill. You want David's crown, but not his caves of Adullam and the rocks of the wild goats. You want your master's throne, but you resist his temptation in the wilderness. Then remember, it cannot be when you refuse the one, the suffering, you relinquish your claim to the other, the glory. If you turn your back upon the cross, you cannot obtain the crown. This joint airship reaches from the gloomy paths of deep affliction up to the bright ineffable splendour of the throne of bliss, nor can any man reverse the record. If so be that we suffer with him, he says, we shall also be glorified together. 
And he's tying together then, quoting in scripture, those two elements of our experience. But having reminded us of the sufferings, he also wants to hold out before us the glory. As this is a legal question, he says, and as in matters of wills, everything should be proven and sworn, we have to look at the evidence of God. So, what does the text tell us? And what else do we find in the scriptures? Four things that belong to the bright part of this inheritance. We are heirs of God, and who can tell what God is? The finite cannot grasp the infinite. We who are but babes cannot hold the great ocean of Godhead in our infantile palms. We know not what God is, nor the measure of his attributes, but all that God is, is ours. His omnipotence, his wisdom, his eternity, his love, his grace, all that is in God is ours. This is the the first and the great and the the abiding part of the inheritance this is the this is the cream of it all that god himself is our portion it's the fulfillment of what the lord promised to abraham and those who like abraham are sons by faith and beyond that then we are also heirs of the world because the father said to the son ask of me and i will give the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession yes the meek are going to inherit the earth you haven't yet come of age so you don't yet possess it but the day shall come when christ shall come to his earth and take possession of it and then his saints shall reign with him beyond that we're told in hebrews 1 2 that christ has been appointed by god heir of all things and so must we be also. Heaven and earth, time and eternity, anything that you can conceive of, the things that can be named and not be named, conceivable and inconceivable. Spurgeon's getting a bit ahead of himself. Can you conceive the inconceivable? That'll be tricky, but finite and infinite, human and divine, it's all Christ's, and so it's all ours. And then another dimension of this, heirs of the kingdom. Christ has a kingdom that shall never be moved. Does he call himself a king? He's made us kings. Is Christ a priest? Then so are we. Does he sit upon a throne? Then so must we have one. Does he judge the nations? Then we shall judge the world. There's a beautiful here drawing together of some of the threads of scripture. And this is, this is where you see that Spurgeon's blood runs bibline. He, he has this marvellous capacity to draw together these various elements of scriptural truth and to organize them around the main thrust of this sermon. So to be an heir of God is to have God himself as the strength of our heart and our portion portion forever, and then with him we become heirs of the world, heirs of all things, and heirs of the kingdom. It's, It's wonderful how Spurgeon pulls all these things together. We need to press on so that we don't uh, try anybody's patience. We come to the third and the practical part of the discourse. And again, notice, and so good for us who are preachers and teachers, that so often we get to the practical part of the discourse and we might wonder what there is left to say in the sense that we see Spurgeon pressing home these truths all the way through. And so what we need to understand is that the truth here never lies on the surface and Spurgeon is good at pressing it home but then there's this banging home of the nail there's this real drive after the soul and we must then learn from Spurgeon to bring the text to bear in a general sense 
but also to make sure that we drive it home in a particular sense. So, administer the effects of the inheritance. How can we do that? Well, says Spurgeon, there's one part of the property to enjoy at once, the fair cross of your once crucified elder brother. And so we're back in that sphere of affliction and persecution and temptation. When you came here this morning, you were troubled, he says, and as you came in, you were envying your neighbour. You were saying of the ungodly, all things seemed to go well with them. You were murmuring at the dispensations of God. Now you've heard your father's will read and find that you are joint heirs with Christ and you've discovered that Christ had his cross and you are asked to administer to the will. So come, take up your cross and bear it with joy. You will have to carry it. Whether you take it up or not, your murmuring will not lighten your afflictions. You can make your wooden cross into an iron one if you choose, he says, by being of a fretful, a complaining disposition. Resignation to God's will takes the weight out of the cross, but a proud spirit who will not bow to God's will changes a wooden cross into an iron one. That's a painful charge, isn't it? That bites in our souls. Is my complaining and repining, my resentment at God's dealings with me, turning my cross from wood into iron, making it all the heavier? Spurgeon says, I know that you all have a cross, and if you don't, I hope you will soon have one, for where there is no cross, there is no Christ. The cross and Christ are nailed together by four nails and will never be disassociated in the experience of any Christian. And so he says, you first and most easily come into that former part of your inheritance. But, and helpful, why cannot we administer also to the blessed part of the glorious testament? Faith can do wonders. Faith can grasp what lies ahead in all its fullness in present experience. Glory be unto thee, O God, says the preacher. Glory be unto thee, my soul is in heaven. I with the cherubim and seraphim would bow and sing and rejoice. With them I veil my face in this most joyful moment, wiping every tear from my poor eyes. I bid them look upon thy glory in Christ. My soul would even now take her seat upon the throne. Where my treasure is, there shall my heart be also. You see, it's not all future. We are now seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We, we already begin to enjoy what we shall one day experience in all its final fullness. So, O God, the judge of all, my spirit meets you robed in my Saviour's righteousness and salutes you as my Father and my all. O eternity, 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 time is gone and change is over and I am floating on your Pacific waves where winds can never howl and tempests never lower. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're waiting for. But, says Spurgeon, we're already beginning to enjoy some of those glorious realities. We're already beginning to experience some of those wonders. We're already delighting in the good things of God. We've got not just a view of them, but we're beginning to enjoy them already. And then, one last practical point, that God has given Christ the heathen for his inheritance and the uttermost ends of the earth for his possession, and we are co-heirs with him. So this is drawing on that thread of the being heirs of the world, but now bringing it into present experience. Let us then, brothers, advance to take the property, says the preacher. Well, how shall you do that? Some of you by preaching the gospel to poor sinners in the streets. 
others by teaching your children in the Sunday school class. Some of you who can't do much yourselves, you can send forth others to preach the gospel of Christ. Whether it's Germany or Holland or Belgium or Russia or Poland, Christ is King of Kings and these lands belong to his people. Don't say, oh, they're too strong for us. He who is with you is mightier by far than those who are against you. So as Jonathan of old with his armour climbed up the steep place in the cleft of the rock and began to mow down his enemies, so believer, alone or with your friend, as God has called you, climb up, for verily the possession is yours and you may take it. All that the church wants today is courage and devotion. That's all we lack, courage and devotion. That's a big all, but that's it. Let the church know her rights and claim them. Let her cease to assimilate herself to the sons of earth. Let her cease from her accursed fornication with the state, and she shall become the pure, chaste bride of Christ. We're to go forth and claim what Christ has won. God's power will be with the heralds of the church. God's might shall be with the armies of the church, who march not as the as the world does with its carnal weapons, but with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So say it, Christians, says Spurgeon, say it this morning by your prayer, your deeds, your constant energy, your benefactions. Demand the earth for Christ. Demand it for yourselves, for you are joint heirs with Christ. I pray you take the possession now. And returning to his earlier theme, poor prodigal sinner, he concludes, may our Father bring you home, for there is an inheritance even for you, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. So even at the end here, Spurgeon goes back to, to drive that home. In this sermon, his primary evangelistic application came much earlier on, but he cannot conclude, especially having said that it's our duty to make Christ known and take the property that belongs to him, then he calls sinners to come in, that Christ may indeed be glorified. And who knows how many people bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ when they heard him so speak in that place. Well, what a wonderful sermon that is. Union with Christ really uh, applied in terms of the inheritance that we now and will soon possess the various dimensions of what it means to be united to him. Doctrinally, it's a very solid sermon. It's uh, got the some of those foundational truths of salvation woven through it, and yet it comes alive with this illustrative material that Spurgeon is so good at drawing out so that it engages the attention and carries us forward. Well, I hope that that will be then a blessing to us, not just to remember what our present and future elements of that inheritance are, but also to remember that we are called to fight for the inheritance that Christ has won for us, that we are to enter in to what he has received. And God willing, next week, Fellowship with God, Sermon 409 on 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. Uh, perhaps you could say almost a further development or aspect of this experience we have of belonging to God in Christ Jesus. And next week's sermons, 409 to 415. May God bless us as we read his word first of all, and then we profit from those who knew how to preach that truth to our souls. May God bless each one of us to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, 
Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.